Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. Well, it was Benjamin Franklin who said way back in 1789 that nothing is certain except death and taxes. Uh, If nothing else, the past year and a half have proven his words to be true. Uh, We've had the phrase uncertain times shoved down our throat so many times that we're ready to gag. Uh, Yeah, 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 we, we get it. Life is filled with uncertainties. And COVID has made us face those uncertainties like never before. Now, most of us don't really like uncertainty. We're planners. We make a plan, we work that plan, and live in our own little world that we think we control. We like to just pretend uncertainty happens to other people. The illusion of certainty and control gives us peace. But now all we have is uncertainty, uncertainty everywhere. I'm not used to being this uncertain for this long. For some of us, this is our story, and we're sticking to it. Uh, Our staff was debriefing the Global Leadership Summit this last week, which was fantastic. In fact, uh, why don't you put August 4th and 5th, 2022 on your calendar right now? You won't regret attending. But as we were debriefing the sessions from this year, we were talking about uncertainty and the challenge it presents in making any plans for ministry right now. I told them that because my role here at Dayspring means that most of the time people are looking to me for answers, every now and then I feel the pressure of uncertainty weighing on me, the pressure for answers when there are none. Every Christmas, Didi and I watch the, the Christmas classic, Christmas Vacation. Uh, I know most of you are familiar with the story. Uh, those of you who aren't, 
are much more spiritual than me, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, in the movie, Chevy Chase is trying to make his house uh, the shining beacon of Christmas cheer in his neighborhood. And at one point while he is putting up Christmas lights, he slides down the roof and catches himself on the rain gutter, which is filled with ice. As it breaks free from the house, an icicle shoots out through the neighbor's window straight into their stereo where it proceeds to melt. And when their neighbors Todd and Margot come home, we see Todd at the stereo and hear Margot, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus of Seinfeld fame, say, why is everything wet, Todd? And he replies, I don't know, Margot. Well, that phrase has become the one that Dee Dee and I use when we don't know the answer to the other's question. You know, like, why is the garage door open? I don't know, Margot. For us, it uses humor to release the tension of uncertainty. Men, it doesn't work when you're really in trouble. Trust me on this one. Our staff has heard me use that phrase more during the past 18 months than Dee Dee ever has. Though you have to say it with attitude, like Todd in the movie. I'm not mad or upset when I say it. I'm just communicating that we are within the cone of uncertainty. I mean, a lot can happen between now and never. <laughs> we hate uncertainty. We are hardwired for structure and control. And it's, it's interesting, really. We live in an uncertain world. It's been that way uh, from the beginning of time, and yet God created us with brains that look for patterns in order to create routines that make it seem as if life is predictable, predictable and controlled, structured. It's a paradox, an enigma. Our brains are hardwired to search for something we will never really find. Now that might seem like a little bit of a downer, but in truth, I'm an eternal optimist. As someone has said, in a world where everything is uncertain, anything is possible. Uh, so in a world where everything is uncertain, we find ourselves at the end of our study of, in 1 John. We'll hit 2 John and 3 John in the next two weeks, but today we're going to close out 1 John. And let's just remind ourselves of what we've discovered so far. In this uncertain world, it is no wonder that all of us at some point or points on our journey with Christ have doubts about our salvation. In a world that is increasingly trying to erase God from existence, we might begin to question the very existence of God. In a world that constantly redefines truth, we might begin to question the contrast between what the world says is true and what his word says is true, making us doubt the relevance of his truth in our modern world. Or, and I think this is the most common doubt we have, we might doubt that he really loves us for who we are. Doubt that Jesus really meant my sin when he forgave. Especially since I can't seem to keep my life together like all those other Christians I see around me. In an uncertain world, doubt is natural. We all have doubts, which is why the Apostle John wrote this letter to give us assurance that we have placed our faith in the right person. And as we've learned... 
our fellowship with God and with other Christians will change us. Over time, our lives will begin to develop characteristics that give us something in common, which is what fellowship means, uh, something in common with God and other Christ followers. In our ever-deepening relationship with God and other Christians, we will all begin to look like Jesus. Not in the physical sense, of course, but we will begin to uh, believe like, think like, and act like Jesus. We will adopt his characteristics and mannerisms, which results in joy. The fullness of our fellowship with God will produce joy. Joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit given when we abide in Christ. Now, joy isn't an emotion like happiness. Joy isn't based on our circumstances. Even in the deepest valley, we can experience joy because joy recognizes that even in grief and loss, even in pain and hardship, even in the darkest night of the soul, God has plans and purposes that will prevail. This fullness of joy is really rooted in the three characteristics that John unpacks in the first half of the letter. Obedience, love, and truth. These three characteristics are rooted in the character of God. In 1 John 1, uh, 1 John 1 verse 5, John told us that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God is light, which is the word that the Bible uses to describe his holiness. So if we want to boil it all down to the basics, in our fellowship with God or Christ, we will become like God. Don't confuse that with becoming God. We will never be gods, but we will become like God. We will become like God in the way we believe, think, and act, and that fellowship will bring out God's light in us. That's really the overarching characteristic of fellowship. We will become light just as God is light. Certainly never as bright as the light that God is. We'll always be dim bulbs, but bulbs who still shine light. And that light is found through obedience, love, and truth. Now, obedience was described as walking in the light. If we're honest with ourselves, we're better at dancing with the dark than we are at walking in the light. And that's because uh, we tend to focus on the dark. We focus on not sinning. Not sinning is success. Not sinning is certainly avoiding the dark and is good, but there is something better. Not sinning keeps us facing the dark. We find something better when we turn toward the light. Now, as we learned, walking in the light isn't just about the absence of wrong in our lives. It's the presence of right. We don't just choose to not sin. When we walk in the light, we choose God's best path in whatever situation we find ourselves. And the highest expression of right is love. Agape love. In every situation, love does what love requires, which is never simply avoiding the dark. It's embracing the light. Now, another aspect or outcome of light we see through our fellowship is discernment. The ability to tell the, the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark. 
We don't have to look very far at the world around us to see that more and more as our world disconnects itself from Christianity, there is confusion. The inability to discern between truth and lies. Obedience, love, and truth. Three characteristics or aspects of the light that are the outcome of fellowship with Christ, which together produce the fullness of joy. And altogether, these characteristics are proof of our fellowship with Christ, which is rooted in the word abide. When we abide in Christ, and we took a close look at that, what, what that means when we were there, uh, when we abide, we are in fellowship, and these characteristics are present in our lives more and more as we abide longer and more consistently. And the combination of them produces joy. And even better, in an uncertain world, the presence of these characteristics are proof or assurance of our salvation in Christ. The gift of these characteristics is that if you work it backwards, we also have clues of a clog in the fellowship pop pipeline. No joy means that we have an area to focus on in our walk with Christ. We probably have a problem with obedience, love, or truth. We aren't abiding. Our fellowship isn't really fellowship at the moment. Now we have a growth area to focus on. In the second half of the letter, John used these three same characteristics, obedience, love, and truth, to help us understand that they're not just proof of our fellowship with Christ— but also proof of our identity in Christ. They prove our place in the family as adopted sons, daughters, and heirs. I'm a fast walker. When I walk, I take long, purposeful strides that leave most people in the dust. In fact, when I walk with Dee Dee, she usually holds my hand, not because she wants to be close to me, although that's true, but because she's learned that even at my slow pace, she'll end up running 10 steps behind me. And we don't live in that kind of a culture. <laughs> when I was a kid, walking next to my dad, I was apparently too slow. So he turned to me and told me that the world turns under the feet of a void when they walk, meaning walk faster. So I took it to heart. So I walk fast. That's what voids do. It's a family trait. Obedience, love, and truth are family traits. They are proof of our identity in Christ. Now, I know that's quite a bit of a recap, but I think it's important to understand where we've come from since the first of June. It's easy to lose sight of the forest when you are looking at it tree by tree. And that brings us to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, this is what scholars regard to be the overall theme verse of 1 John. There he writes, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. The purpose of this letter is to give us assurance of our life in and through Jesus. Now, circle the word no if you've got your physical Bible with you. If you're looking at it electronically, you might want to highlight the whole verse depending on what software you're using. Um, don't do that on your TV at home, but circle that word. This is an important word. Now, I know that this stool is strong. 
I know that it will hold my weight. That is what we consider to be head knowledge. Uh, I can know that and still never sit on the stool. I can never experience the stool's purpose and still know that it will hold me if I sit on it. That isn't the kind of no John is talking about. In fact, the, that kind of no is a no-no as far as John is concerned. The word, the kind of no John means is commitment. It is knowledge that moves me to action. Until I sit on the stool, my no is incomplete. The head knowledge of what John has written about fellowship and identity, about obedience, love, and truth, it's incomplete and will therefore not give us the assurance of our salvation until we put that knowledge into action and let it change us. It is only then, with experiential knowing, that we will know, know. Now, in its various forms, know shows up 39 times throughout the five chapters of 1 John. Eight of them in chapter 5 alone. Uh, as a reminder, here are some of the things we can now know after working our way through John's letter to this point. Now, I'm going to go through them quickly, but they are listed in the message notes with the references if you want to look them up later on your own. So, courtesy of theologian Daniel Aiken, starting in chapter 2, number one, we can know that we know God. We can know that we are in God. We can know that it is the last hour. We can know the truth. We can know that Jesus is righteous. We can know that we will be like Jesus. We can know that Jesus came to take away sins. We can know that Jesus is sinless. We can know that we have passed out of death into life. We can know that no murderer has eternal life. Now remember that John equivocates hatred to murder. So that's about love and hatred, and you will probably want to look that up in context later. We can know love. We can know that God abides in us. We can know the spirit of God. We can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. We can know that we love God's children. What we can know through fellowship with Christ stands in stark contrast to the uncertainty that we find in the world around us. So here in verse 13, we have our first point of the message, even though it is technically the 16th in this list. We can know that we have eternal life. Now, let's continue with verse 14. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. That's our next point. We can know that God answers prayer. 18th century pastor and evangelist R.A. Torrey once said, prayer is the key 
that unlocks all of the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do, and since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Of course, this knowing comes with some fine print. John frames this statement with some context. He already addressed prayer in chapter 3, verse 22. There he told us that God answers our prayers when we are both keeping his commands and doing things that please him. Here he adds a third requirement. We must ask according to his will. God isn't a heavenly genie who responds to our beck and call. Prayer isn't something we do to bend God's will to our own. Prayer is a means of submitting our will to his. Uh, Daniel Aiken writes, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. You might need to chew on that one for a while. God's will might be different than what you want, but it is always better than what you want. It comes down to this. If we are abiding in Christ, in fellowship, as John has described throughout this letter, the very desires of our hearts are aligned with the plans and purposes of God, and they are heard by God whether we voice them or not. We don't need to pray because God needs to hear our prayers in order to answer them. We pray because prayer keeps us aligned with the plans and purposes of God. Prayer positions us to receive and recognize what God wants to give us. Now, while these two verses are about petition, the next two verses give us instruction about intercession or how we pray for others. Verse 16, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. Now, these two verses have presented scholars with more questions than they have answers for. In fact, uh, some commentators believe that the key to what John means here was lost with the passing of the first century church. John presents two people, one who sins in a way that doesn't lead to death and one who sins in a way that does lead to death. So is John speaking of spiritual death or physical death? Is he thinking of a Christian and a non-Christian, or are both Christians? We don't know. Uh, first of all, it seems likely that since the fellow believer is a Christ follower, when he or she falls into sin, it doesn't lead to death because Christ's death already took care of it. They cannot die spiritually. We cannot die spiritually. We can be disciplined, but we cannot die. So, when you see a brother or sister in Christ sinning, pray for their restoration. Restoration is always aligned with God's will. 
Now, it also seems likely that the person who sins in a way that leads to death is an unbeliever, especially when you contrast the way he introduced the first sinner as a fellow believer. In this case, he doesn't tell us not to pray, but I think it is doubtful that it will do any good. Which then begs the question, what is the sin that leads to death? The three likeliest explanations are first, a specific deadly sin, which is a willful, deliberate sin. Uh, think of Ananias and Sapphira in the first century church. Uh, they willfully chose to lie and then were put to instant death for it. Given that we all have willfully chosen to sin and are still living, this explanation doesn't really ring true. The second possibility is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is a deliberate, willful hardening of the heart and rejection of the truth to which the Spirit bears witness. And the third is the total rejection of the gospel and Christ. This is the sin we see in the false teachers who were manifesting the spirit of Antichrist back in chapter 2. People who are habitually opposing the work of Jesus in this world. Again, scholars are all over the map regarding these two verses, so I don't think we can be dogmatic, but it seems to me as if this last interpretation is right. And if it is, then John is saying that for those who willfully and irrevocably reject the biblical teaching about Jesus, prayer will do no good. It is useless. They will experience spiritual death. In all other cases, sin can be confronted through prayer, and there is hope for reconciliation which leads to life. And then in verse 17, just to be clear, all sin is bad, but not all sin is hopeless. Now, in all cases, we can know that God answers prayers. And maybe I should remind you that no is an answer just as much as yes is. We just don't like to hear it. Now, let's continue with verse 18. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, the phrase God's children that we see here in the New Living Translation, that in the NASB, is, it is born of God. We know that no one who is born of God sins. And just as we've seen 39 appearances of no in its various forms in this letter, we've seen the phrase born of God around 13 times. Those who are born of God keep his commands. Those who are born of God walk the same way Christ walked. Those who are born of God love. They don't hate. Those who are born of God have the Holy Spirit, listen to the world, believe in Jesus, have overcome the world, and so on. Here, one last time, we see that we can know victory over sin. Someone born of God does not keep on sinning. It is no longer a, the pattern in their life. Instead, our fellowship with God replaces old desires with new desires. Now, of course, we are not perfected yet, and John isn't talking about our perfection here. He is talking about the pattern of our life. We do slip into acts of sin, but we do not permanently persist in sin. We are in a war, and all Christians face three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
all three work against our becoming like Jesus and want to keep us in sin. And as we've already seen, and we'll see in the next verse, this world is under the control of Satan. He has domain over the world's systems and uses them to fight the advance of Jesus in us, through us, and around us. Under his authority, our world fights against our righteousness. As Warren Wiersbe says, the atmosphere around us makes it hard to keep our minds pure and our hearts true to God. Satan himself has many ways of leading us into sin. He is the father of lies. He inflicts physical suffering. He stokes our egos and inflames our pride. He is a deceiver who deceives and a lion who devours. And then there is our flesh. We might have new life in our spirits, but we are stuck in these old bodies. Yes, we have a new nature, but it is at war with our old nature as long as we are in these bodies. All three of these enemies work together to keep us from becoming like Jesus. But as we see here, Jesus keeps Satan from getting his grubby mitts on us. Satan cannot touch us without God's permission. We see this truth vividly in the story of Job in the Old Testament. We also see it in, interact, in an interaction between Jesus and Peter. In Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, now remember it's Simon Peter, so he's talking to Peter here. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Now notice that it doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, Satan has asked me, uh, asked to sift you, and I told him no. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And after you've fallen, and you will, and then been restored, Use that experience to help other, help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn your weakness into ministry. Whenever Satan's, Satan attacks, we know that God has given him permission. But if God has given him permission, he has also given you the power to overcome. Because God never allows us to be tested beyond our ability to just say no. Now, here's some good news. In the Handbook of Spiritual Warfare, which is the lowercase Bible of what the Bible has to teach about spiritual warfare, Ed Murphy says that for sin to occur, all three enemies, the world, the flesh, and Satan, must be present. Take away one, and voila, no sin. So let's, let's use a really obvious example. Sexual sin. The systems of this world controlled by Satan are dripping with sexuality. It's everywhere you look. And of course, Satan, the father of lies, will always justify, oh, it's not so bad. Just once isn't so bad, and then never again. Or you deserve to feel good. Or whatever. Satan's going to use whatever works on you, and he knows you better than you do. And then there's your flesh. I don't need to say more. Sin occurs when all three enemies come together. Take one away and no sin. So stop looking at, reading, uh, or reading the things that the world throws your way. 
or set your mind on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Fill yourself with so much Jesus that there isn't room for anything else. Pray that God doesn't give Satan permission. Now, I, I know I might be oversimplifying a very complex issue, but you get the point. And there are children in the room and watching. <laughs> Bottom line, we belong to Jesus, and we know that he can give us victory over sin. Leading us to verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Now, in stark contrast to the world around us, as children of God, we are safe from the power of the evil one. But the world is a slave. Through our relationship with Christ, we can know that we belong to God. The world is tragically caught up in the lies and futility of a system that will never lead to freedom. It throws up the illusion of freedom, but that's all it is, an illusion. They have been blinded by the evil one, and they don't know the difference. I know that many of us have struggled with anger as we look at what's going on in the world around us right now. There is so much hate, so little common sense, so little civility, so little humility. Anger is the wrong response, my friends. They can't help it. Uh, we can. Uh, the only reason we know what we know is that we no longer belong to this world. In fellowship, we have discernment. They don't. We're in an epic battle of the heart. There are powers and principalities at work fighting against the work of Jesus in this world. The book has already been written. The systems of this world will have their way. We will have very little overall impact on the systems of the world at this point. Now, that doesn't mean that some of us shouldn't uh, or, or aren't called to slow the roll, but our only hope, our only real impact will come as we change lives for Jesus. Love is the only way out of the dark. Only love will light the way to save those who can be saved. Which leads us to verses 20 and 21. Because of our fellowship with Christ, we can know what is true. So let's finish this out. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Now, John finishes this letter the way he began it, with Jesus. Uh, everything we've, dis we've discovered the, the last 12 weeks is possible because Jesus came physically to this planet, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died as the penalty for our sins on the cross. And then three days later, conquered death when he rose again. Our eternal life is in him through his work on the cross. That's the only way we can know what is true. Without Jesus, we would be lost in the dark. Now, we know that John probably wrote this letter in Ephesus at the end of his life. 
Ephesus was a city given over to the worship of idols. Most of the Christ followers in the church in Ephesus had been saved out of idol worship. Ephesus housed the temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was also an important trade city and as such drew people and their gods from around the known world. The making and selling of idols was one of the chief occupations for people there. The Christians were under enormous pressure to conform. Sound familiar? Our culture might not worship wooden man-made idols like Ephesus, but idol worship is still alive and well in our culture. It just looks different. We worship financial security. We worship self. We worship me time. We worship material things. I mean, we generally think of money, fame, sex, and power when we think of the idols of today, but we worship anything and everything. Anything, even good things. Anything that has a higher place than God in your life is idol worship. Family, Netflix, your goals and dreams. Every single one of us, without exception, every single one of us has an idol that competes with God for our attention. Probably more than one. The story of 1 John is that we become like the God we worship. So make sure the right God is on the throne. And we do that by abiding in Christ, in fellowship with God and other Christ followers. Keep away from everything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these three gifts, obedience, love, and truth that give us assurance in an uncertain world that we don't belong to this world. But the, the reality is that there are people in this room today, people watching online, who do not know what we're talking about. And they might have heard of Jesus, might have walked away from Jesus, might be skeptical of Jesus. And that might be you today. You don't have to live life in the dark. It is way better in the light. In the light, we go through the same things that, that people in the dark go through. We still have cancer. We still have financial hardship. We still lose our jobs. We, we still have kids that want to do their own thing, but we do them with Jesus, and that makes life much better. And today, if you're here in the room or watching online, and, and you want to step out of the dark into the light, it's really easy. You just have to say, yes, yes, Jesus, I have sinned, and I, that sin has separated me from, from you. And I can never get clean again without you.
So Jesus, I believe, and I want you to lead me from here on out. I give my life to you. It's that easy. Just say yes. And then let us know so that we can help you with the next steps. Now, also in the room, there's another group of people watching who have been dancing with the dark. When we read um, verses that say um, those born of of Christ, born of God, no longer sin, and we look at our lives, we go, okay, well, that doesn't describe me. Stop dancing with the dark. Turn toward the light. Today I'm interceding on your behalf praying for your reconciliation, for your restoration. That is always in alignment with God's will. And you might need help. Some sins are hard to walk away from. And if that's the case, just talk to me. Not because I have it all together, by the way, just because we can get there together. God, we want to live our lives for your glory. We want to to walk in the light and let the light of Jesus shine through us that the world may know. Thank you that we don't live in uncertainty anymore. Thank you that we know. Thank you that we have um, the solid rock on which we've built our lives. Our only problem is that we like to get to the edge and slip off. So keep us in the center, on the solid rock. That is where our hope is. We pray in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.